Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome back to World Weekly. I'm David Gardner, the International Affairs Editor at the Financial Times. I'm sitting in for Gideon Rackman, who is still in South Africa and will be back with us in a couple of weeks after licking his wounds at the ignominious defeat of the England football team. I'm joined in the studio by Helen Worrell, our Asia Page editor. Hello. Neil Buckley, the Eastern Europe editor. Hello. And James Blitz, the FT's defence and diplomatic editor. Hello. It's been a busy week, as ever. Everything from wobbles in the euro, wobbles at the top of the German government after the presidential election yesterday, to wobbles in the strategy for Afghanistan. Last week, we covered the abrupt sacking of General Stanley McChrystal, the commander on the ground in Afghanistan. This week, we'll be looking at how his replacement, General David Petraeus, has been getting on after his sudden elevation, or rather return to the front line. After that, we'll be hearing from our Beijing correspondent, Catherine Hiller, about Google's final attempts to rescue its presence and reputation in China. The whole thing started in January this year when Google surprised everyone with an announcement saying that they had decided they could no longer put up with Chinese censorship and they also had concerns about, about hacking. After that, we'll be turning our attention to the alleged Russian spies arrested in the US and Cyprus earlier this week, billed in much of the coverage as a throwback to the Cold War but in its almost comic incompetence, more like a throwback to the Keystone Cops. Now, first on our agenda today, Petraeus, Afghanistan, the future of that seemingly imperiled enterprise. My sense is that the tough fighting will continue. Indeed, it may get more intense in the next few months. As we take away the enemy's safe havens and reduce the enemy's freedom of action, the insurgents will fight back. I am keenly aware of concerns by some of our troopers on the ground about the application of our rules of engagement and the tactical directive. They should know that I will look very hard at this issue. James, if I could bring you in, first of all, is this strategy doomed? Quite possibly, and some would say probably. There's been a change of the commander of NATO, as you've said, um, you now have General David Petraeus in charge. He's got a very considerable international reputation, although I have to say in, in Europe, in NATO, in the United Kingdom, the departure of Stanley McChrystal has still shocked people because he was well regarded by senior people in the hierarchy here and in Brussels. The bottom line is, David, as you know, that the US and General Petraeus really don't have very long to show that this strategy is working. They have until the end of this year. Three things will come together at the end of this year. They are the NATO summit in Lisbon, 
the review of strategy by the United States and the midterm elections. At that point, I think a judgment will be made by the US and its allies about whether this surge is working and whether in July 2011 you either have, one, a very small withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan, continuing to therefore build as much as possible until about 2014 the Afghan National Army, or whether you have something more substantial, a, a much bigger drawdown to a much shorter time frame. That is what's at stake. And so by the end of this year, as I think you would agree, General Petraeus really has got to show that there is some serious improvement on the ground in Afghanistan. How will we know that this, I think we could all agree, very ambitious strategy is at last beginning to work? I think the fundamental question is whether President Karzai is putting civilian effect, Afghan government effect on the ground in the places that matter. We are seeing NATO clearing the Taliban out of Marja and the central Helmand belt. Over the next few months, we will see NATO seeking to clear the Taliban out of the suburbs of Kandahar City. But the fundamental point is that once that has happened, President Karzai has to put his own people on the ground. If he doesn't, what happens is the Taliban come back, they take over the population, and the operation gets nowhere. That's basically what's happened in Marja. If by the end of this year you have not seen a significant presence of government of the Republic of Afghanistan figures on the ground, I'm not sure people will think the strategy is going anywhere. But are there any signs at all that President Karzai, upon whom to a large extent this strategy hinges as a so-called reliable partner. Are there any signs at all that he's willing to do this or is he striking off in another direction altogether and trying to secure his own post-NATO future? Well, that is the question. There's no great sign that his government is getting its people on the ground and there's a lot of sign that he's looking at the post-NATO environment in Afghanistan, as I think you would agree looking to see what the situation is going to be once NATO withdraws, making relationships with some of the groups that are around, not getting rid in any way of his brother's huge influence in Kandahar, Ahmed Wadi Karzai, who runs a totally parallel operation, looking to see really which way Pakistan is going to blow in all this, which is absolutely critical to the future of the uh, of the situation. To what extent the Pakistan, and particularly the intelligence leadership in Pakistan wants to basically strike some kind of deal with the Taliban or get them out of the way. These are the key issues that are ahead. In the light of that, and if it particularly the reports are true that Karzai is trying to strike a deal with the Pakistani intelligence and military establishment, not to mention some of the proxy organizations that they operate from Pakistan into Afghanistan, how Coming back to Petraeus, does he need to redefine his mission in this very, very small window that he has between now and the end of the year? What he's got to do, number one, is he has got to, in the short term, face down the Taliban threat. The definition of success at the end of this year will be that there is significant downward pressure on the Taliban as far as the insurgency versus NATO is concerned. That's absolutely critical. If he doesn't achieve that, then things aren't going anywhere. He has to give the Taliban a bloody nose. But then I think there needs to be negotiations with the Taliban, both at the reconciliation level at the top and also the reintegration level at the bottom. And that all has to make progress. So he's got to be pushing that ahead. And McChrystal was very clear that that was absolutely essential. And there's got to be a wider agreement with Afghanistan's partners Pakistan, India, 
quite possibly Iran, to make sure that there is a proper settlement which underpins this government. Now, the good news, I think, one of the things that Petraeus does bring is that I think he has a much better sense of the international dimension than McChrystal had. McChrystal was very much a counterinsurgency man on the ground, whereas I think Petraeus has a much better sense of the wider dimension. So I think that is what he brings to the party. What, what do you think? Well, one last point which occurs to me, I'd be interested to hear your views. I mean, if it is the case that, well, it, it is already the case that the West, indeed the Security Council, is piling on the pressure on Iran, it might be the case before the year elapses that Israel will act on what it keeps on saying, it, it threatening to do, and attacks Iran. Now, in a situation on the ground in Afghanistan where the Allies are having trouble clearing the south and the east to the extent that the problem is spreading into the north, such as you know, the four Norwegian soldiers who are killed in a otherwise fairly quiet place in Afghanistan last week. What if the Iranians decide that it is no longer in their interest to contain the west of Afghanistan, which they have been doing up until now, in their own interest? Well, that would be one of the very serious consequences, and there would be many serious consequences, of Israeli action on Iran. There's absolutely no question about that. Iran has basically looked on Afghanistan. There's been a certain amount of interference by Iran in Afghanistan against NATO interests, but Iran has sought over the last couple of years to be a positive player. It's very concerned by in particular, the impact of the heroin trade into Iran itself, which affects an enormous number of its indigenous population. So it wants to clamp down on that. It's participated in a number of meetings, such as the meeting at the start of uh, last year in The Hague, where the Iranians met with senior figures from the US. So it is positive. But of course, if Israel were to attack Iran, which clearly is a growing possibility given the nature of the nuclear program, Iran will take a very hostile view of the U.S. operation in Afghanistan and make life impossibly difficult. So that is unfortunately one of the negative consequences which we may yet be talking about six months from now. I think we'll be talking about this for quite a long time to come. Thanks very much, James. Now, moving on to the Google China story. Helen. With suggestions this week that China may not renew Google's operating licence, I asked Catherine Hiller, the FT's Beijing correspondent, for an update on the ongoing battle between Google and the Chinese authorities. The whole thing started in January this year when Google surprised everyone with an announcement saying that they had decided they could no longer put up with Chinese censorship and they also had concerns about, about hacking. So they had decided to, to review their China strategy. And then two months later, they followed up with an announcement saying that they would automatically redirect users of their Chinese website to their Hong Kong website, which is uncensored. So now... Google has been told by the Chinese government that the license that allows them to operate a website and which needs to be uh, renewed every year will not get renewal if Google continues to automatically redirect to Hong Kong. What is the basis of Beijing's complaint against Google? The first time Beijing openly complained about Google was last year when uh, it blamed Google for allegedly having failed to remove pornographic links from its China search, we have to look at that in the context of an overall tightening of web censorship in China. So and in, in this tightening, China has broadly used 
the accusation of uh, internet pornography against a whole lot of uh, internet companies. So the, the authorities have met the accusation of uh, pornography with the accusation of, of other so-called illegal content, which might also be political. Another thing that's been going on here is a complaint by Chinese authors about Google's move to scan books for its online uh, book project. So do you think there is any actual desire on Google's part to work with Beijing on the censorship issues rather than just finding various loopholes and ways around the problem? I think there is a desire, but there is not much room for compromise, right? And um, maybe part of the problem is that Google is somehow trying to have its cake and eat it too, because they, they, they are willing to find compromise and they're continuing to talk from the Chinese government's point of view. The way Google has been handling these things has been provocative and maybe a loss of face because they've been taking this out in the open and they've publicly expressed their uh, problems and displeasure um, at the the Chinese government. Now, obviously, if the negotiations between Beijing and Google break down completely, Google may actually have to withdraw from the Chinese market altogether. Do you think that's really an option? Could it do that? It would probably have to do that. Well, the first thing that would probably have to happen uh, would be that the Google.cn website would close down. And in that sense, Google would lose a bridgehead, which it now uses to get all its Chinese users to uh, visit the Hong Kong site. Because there are, of course, large numbers of Chinese as well who know that Google has search websites in many other countries, so it could manually type in the, the Hong Kong URL or, or the google.com address and then go there and search there, and also in Chinese. But then there are much larger numbers of people who don't know that in China and for whom it would just be so much more convenient to, to uh, just... They, they would just go where they used to go, to google.cn, find it's no longer there, and that's it. And then they would probably go to some rival Chinese search engine. So Google would lose that and probably lose a large amount of traffic in China. And then the next question would be, okay, would Google then decide to maybe close down part of its research and or sales operation because they, um, maybe there, there would no longer be a justification for, for employing so many people here. Now, on to our final story, which you may have been following, the alleged Russian spying picked up in the U.S. and, indeed, in Cyprus earlier this week. Helen. Thank you. Well, the story of the 11 Russian agents who now face conspiracy charges may sound more like something from a John le Carre novel than a modern-day news story. But, Neil, one of the key issues with this is what were the Russians actually trying to do with this, this network? The Cold War is over. Was there a need for this kind of espionage? Well, of course, there's a great surprise that Russian citizens were living undercover in the American suburbs, going to school, going to universities, along with uh, completely unsuspecting neighbours and fellow students. But there perhaps shouldn't be quite so much surprise that Russia is still engaged in espionage activities against the US. Relations between the two countries have not always been easy. They've not been uh, ideal in recent years. And, of course, the intelligence agencies were never closed down in uh, Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. They were broken up and weakened somewhat for a while, but under Mr Putin's presidency, 
uh, they started to enjoy something of a new lease of life. So it appears that Russia felt that it's it wanted to remain in uh, close touch with developments in US policy, particularly in areas like uh, nuclear technology and so on. And they decided to continue these kind of operations using so-called illegals or nelegali, as they call in Russian, which is a very old tradition uh, in Russian espionage of using citizens as uh, as spies without diplomatic cover or legal diplomatic cover, which would give them immunity from prosecution. What we can question is whether this actually was worth doing at all. It appears that uh, this group uncovered very little that they couldn't have uh, uncovered by spending a few days or weeks uh, intensively Googling on the internet. Yes, certainly it sounds as if it was more drama than actual results involved here. But another issue is whether or not this will affect the very delicate US-Russia reset. Well, clearly the timing is very awkward indeed. Uh, These arrests came less than 72 hours after Dmitry Medvedev, the Russian president, had uh, departed from a, a summit in Washington with Mr Obama. Uh, and that was a summit where Mr. Medvedev was really, uh, if you like, on his best behaviour and trying to present Russia once again as a, a more willing partner of the US. Uh, and he was doing a great deal, actually, to try and sum up investment interest in Russia. It also goes against the kind of unwritten uh, protocol, rule of protocol, that you don't do these things, you don't make these kind of arrests either just before a summit or during a summit or just after one. But it appears that one of the um, alleged spies was about to flee the country or the FBI feared that uh, one of them was about to to flee the country and that forced the, the timing of this. My sense is that it's unlikely actually to derail the reset at least at the level of the US administration and senior officials uh, in Russia. At the moment, both sides at the highest level seem rather to be playing this down or making a big effort to play it down. The Russians, of course, initially were quite outspoken in their reaction, quite angry, but they've toned that down quite a lot in the last 24, 48 hours. And on the US side, Mr Obama himself seems to be trying to avoid speaking about this and leaving it very much to law and order enforcement officials um, to talk about this issue. The one big area of concern, I think, is over the START Treaty, the Nuclear Arms Reduction Treaty that was signed uh, by the two presidents in May. That does still need to be ratified by the US Senate, uh, and I think there is a concern that more hardline elements within the US Senate will take this as evidence and seek to present this as evidence that Russia is still a partner that the US cannot trust if it's going to behave in this way. And there is at least the danger that that treaty could be derailed as a result of this. Well, we will continue to have further coverage of this story in the FT and on FT.com. Presumably, the subject will come up in the course of the next week when US Secretary of State Hillary Clinton visits, as it were, post-Soviet space in the Ukraine. Where else, Neil? Georgia and Azerbaijan, Mrs Clinton, is uh, is visiting over the course of this coming weekend. There'll be plenty to watch uh, uh, in terms of developments in Afghanistan. But that's it for this week. All that's left is to thank James, Neil, Catherine in Beijing, and of course Helen. And thank you for listening. World Weekly was produced by Laura Jane Filatrani. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.